So apparently the theme this morning is 2018 is over. I mean, I've heard it like five times already. So here's number six. What do you think about 2018? <laughs> it's like done, isn't it? It's, it's, it's gone. And the question is, where did it go? Anybody? Like that fast for you? I have good news. There are 367 shopping days until Christmas. <laughs> so, you know, for you uh, procrastinators, there's time. Well, and what about, what about anybody? You have the kind of the Christmas, the post-Christmas blues. Anybody get that? I was chatting with a friend the other day, and we were talking about uh, Christmas and family, and <laughs> that's God combination for some of us, isn't it? Christmas and family, and we were talking about it in the context of, of, of Christmas dinner specifically, and we were talking about families. Do you have any rules at, at, at Christmas time, uh, or, or, or maybe even Thanksgiving, when family gets together, uh, like rules of engagement? So, you know, are you the person at home that has to kind of keep things uh, focused and centered uh, because, um, you know, the conversation needs to be civil because we need more civility in the world, don't we? And so you're trying to keep the, the conversation civil, right? Because you've got family. Family comes, and it's Christmas time, and they're around the dinner table, and, and you, you want to make sure it's civil. And, and, and you've got, for oh, for goodness sakes, don't talk about Uncle Fred. You have an Uncle Fred? Yeah, you don't want to bring up Uncle Fred because that, that could be problematic. And then, and then whatever you do, if the subject of politics or religion comes up, duck. Right? Oh, you got to love family gatherings. I, I told Richie, um, you know, uh, I thought he was going to be out this week. It's so weird. Um, did you notice that the pastor, um, he's in the nursery. <laughs> Gentlemen? Gentlemen, did you notice that the lead pastor is in the nursery with his wife serving? I'm just saying, gentlemen, I'm just saying, you might want to think about that. You might want to think about that. So, anyway, I was preparing this message, and one of the themes in the message today is going to be sin and family dysfunction. And this friend of mine told me, based on what he knows about me and my family, he guessed I had plenty of material to work with. And I think he was right. Because, see, we Christians, it's, it's, we're an interesting lot, aren't we? It's, it's okay. We Christians, we're an interesting lot. And, see, we're redeemed by, we're redeemed by the God who created us, and yet, from the, bidding, the very beginning of time, we're interesting because of the fact that we're just, I think, sometimes just so full of ourselves. Uh-oh. From time to time, I've been known to use the term, you just got to get over your bad self. Now, I'm not sure who coined that term, but I like it. it it's almost biblical. Just get over your bad self. The obvious meaning is, listen, Todd, just stop being so self-centered. And conceited and maybe even narcissistic. Because selfishness, this, this, this selfishness thing, it runs rampant in some circles, doesn't it? People think that they're all that in the bag of chips. Hmm. 
Now, I'll have to admit, the people that use terms like this, if they're honest, they're probably the ones that it most applies to, so maybe that's why I say it so often. All that in a bag of chips. Well, you probably know that we can trace the genesis of this self thing, the problem of self. We can trace it right back to Genesis, can't we? Because right there at the beginning of time as we know it, there were the two and they were in the garden. And what happened in the garden? You see, they were deceived to see because Satan came. And they had everything that they needed. There they were in the garden with God. It was perfect. And yet, God simply said, hey, don't eat. Satan came and what did they do? They ate. Now, Surely they had no idea of the consequences of that. Do you think? No idea of the consequences when God simply said, I love you, don't eat. And Satan appealed to their selfish side and they ate. And so it is with us. And I wonder sometimes if we even understand the consequences of our own actions. Do we? Because if something appeals to our rebellious side or our selfish side, it results in actions. We take actions, don't we? Words, thoughts, deeds. We do these things, don't we? These things that had their genesis in the garden. Now, Adam and Eve had a choice to make. There's no question about that. And in the human realm, you see, this had never happened before because they were the two humans, right? It had never happened before. There they were. God simply gave them this command. Don't eat, but they ate. So sin is a powerful thing. Sin is a powerful thing. We've been dealing with it ever since. That fateful decision that those two made in the garden. Now, I don't know about you, but frankly, I don't like that. Anyone? I don't like that sin thing. R.C. Sproul once said, At the moment I sin, I desire the sin more than I desire to please God. That's so true, isn't it? So I titled the message today, you might see it in your, in your bulletin, I titled the message today, a Bloom Where You're Planted. Now, bloom where you're planted is a term that I've kind of latched onto because we had this dear sister in the Lord that was at, at continuing care for a number of years. She her name was B, and she, she went home to be with the Lord at 102 years of age. And, but this was a woman that, that told us, that came to minister there, that we should just bloom where we're planted. And boy, that's what she did. This was a woman that was living in the Spirit. She was pursuing righteousness. That's what she cared about. And she was just blooming where she was planted. I love that. But the subtitle of the message, and you can look at your, why don't you do that? You go through all the trouble to walk through the door and they, you know, Shiloh makes these things. We are probably, anybody not look at this? Maybe you should look at it. Anyway, it, it says right there in the sermon notes, that bloom where you're planted, the story of Joseph, righteousness, attitude, and sin. But I'm going to challenge you this morning, if you have a writing instrument, to take the subtitle of righteousness, attitude, and sin and flip it. Sin, righteousness, are at the opposite ends. So make it sin, attitude, and righteousness for this morning. 
because we're going to be taking a look at what we need to do to get over our bad selves, and we're going to be taking a look at that in the story of Joseph, starting in Genesis chapter 37. Now, it's a story that's very familiar to most of us, but we're going to see these big three in this story, sin, attitude, and righteousness. And the whole story covers about 14 chapters in Genesis, starting in 37, and I don't think we're going to go there unless you brought a box lunch. But wouldn't it be cool, Richie is in the nursery, wouldn't it be cool to go really long so that they <laughs> so he has like a flavor of what it's like for the sermon to go long? I don't know, that's just the way I think. But this story of Joseph, I, I think, is, is familiar to all of us because what we're going to see is sin, attitude, and righteousness, and, and, and we're only going to look at really a, a, a chapter and a half of the story today, but, but what we're going to see is... And, and how we're going to apply this is we're going to see what matters in terms of what we believe, the choices we make, our attitudes and our actions. And we're going to see family dysfunction. We are going to see the will of God in righteousness. And we're going to see what happens as a result of the right attitude when Joseph chooses to bloom where he's planted. So we're going to open the word of God, but let's pray first. Father, thank you, God, for your word of truth. God, thank you. Thank you, God, that you have given it to us. You have given us your word of truth. And as we open it now, God, I pray, Lord, that you would speak to us, God. I pray, Lord, that the, that the words of the page that are alive, God, would bring a message to us, God, and that that message would be powerful and applicable, that we might be transformed. In your name, amen. So let's, uh, let's go right to Genesis chapter 37, and we're going to read the chapter. You can look at it on the screens if you'd like to, because it's, uh, it's in the NLT and not the NIV, and so some of you have different versions of Scripture out there, right? So you might want to just follow along on the screen, and we'll read it. Genesis Chapter 37, starting in verse 2. This is the account of Jacob and his family. When Joseph was 17 years old, he often tended his father's flocks. He worked for his half-brothers, the sons of his father's wives, Bilah and Zilpah. But Joseph reported to his father some of the bad things his brothers were doing. Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other children because Joseph had been born to him in his old age. Remember that. So one day, Jacob had a special gift made for Joseph, a beautiful robe. But his brothers hated Joseph because their father loved him more than the rest of them. They couldn't say a kind word to him. One night, Joseph had a dream. And when he told his brothers about it, they hated him more than ever. Listen to this dream, he said. We were out in the field tying up bundles of grain. Suddenly my bundle stood up and your bundles all gathered around and bowed low before mine. His brothers responded, So you think you will be our king, do you? Do you actually think you will reign over us? And they hated him all the more because of his dreams and the way he talked about them. Soon Joseph had another dream, and again he told his brothers about it. Listen, I have had another dream, he said. The sun, the moon, and the eleven stars bowed low before me. This time he told the dream to his father as well as to his brothers. But his father scolded him. What kind of dream is that, he asked. Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow to the ground before you? But while his brothers were jealous of Joseph, his father wondered about what 
the dreams meant. Soon after this, Joseph's brothers went to pasture their father's flocks in Shechem. When they had been gone for some time, Jacob said to Joseph, Your brothers are pasturing the sheep at Shechem. Get ready, and I will send you to them. I'm ready to go, Joseph replied. Go and see how your brothers and flocks are getting along, Jacob said. Then come back and bring me a report. So Jacob sent him on his way, and Joseph traveled to Shechem from their home in the valley of Hebron. When he arrived there, a man from the area noticed him wandering about the countryside. What are you looking for, he asked. I'm looking for my brothers, Joseph replied. Do you know where they are pasturing their sheep? Yes, the man told them. They have moved on from here, but I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph followed his brothers to Dothan where he found them there. When Joseph's brothers saw him coming, they recognized him in the distance. As he approached, they made plans to kill him. Here comes the dreamer, they said. Come on, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns. We can tell our, our father a wild animal has eaten him. Then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. But when Reuben heard of their scheme, he came to Joseph's rescue. Let's not kill him, he said. Why should we shed any blood? Let's just throw him into this empty cistern here in the wilderness. Then he'll die without our laying a hand on him. Reuben was secretly planning to rescue Joseph and return him to his father. So when Joseph arrived, his brothers ripped off the beautiful robe he was wearing. Then they grabbed him and threw him into the cistern. Now the cistern was empty. There was no water in it. Then just as they were sitting down to eat, they looked up and saw a caravan of camels in the distance coming towards them. It was a group of Israelite traders taking a load of gum, balm, and aromatic resin from Galilee down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, What will we gain by killing our brother? We'd have to cover up the crime. Instead of hurting him, let's sell him to the Ishmaelite traders. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. And his brothers agreed. So when the Ishmaelites, who were Midianite traders, came by, Joseph's brothers pulled him out of the cistern and sold him to, to them for 20 pieces of silver. And the traders took him to Egypt. Sometime later, Reuben returned to get Joseph out of the cistern. When he discovered that Joseph was missing, he tore his clothes in grief. Then... He went back to his brothers and lamented, The boy is gone. What will I do now? Then the brothers killed a young goat and dipped Joseph's robe in its blood. They sent the beautiful robe to their father with this message, Look at what we found. Doesn't this robe belong to your son? Their father recognized it immediately. Yes, he said, It is my son's robe. A wild animal must have eaten him. Joseph has clearly been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes and dressed himself in burlap. He mourned deeply for his son for a long time. His family all tried to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. I will go to my grave mourning for my son, he would say. And then he would weep. Right away in chapter 37 in this story, we see the problem. It comes at us right out of the box in verse 3. It says that Jacob, his name actually got changed to Israel, but it says that Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other children. And what was the result of that? Yeah, his brothers hated him because their father loved him more than the rest of them. Verse 4 says, they couldn't even say a kind word to him. So much for a loving family. 
But it got worse from the brother's point of view, didn't it? Because Joseph's dreams were clearly a point of contention, weren't they? Now, we don't know if he copped an attitude. He had the dream and he told them about it, but did he really cop an attitude? Now, certainly it's possible because he was 17 and everybody in this room knows that a 17-year-old is brilliant. Right, parents? Isn't it amazing how smart teenagers are and how dumb their parents are until they get to be about 32? And then all of a sudden you realize how smart your parents really are. He was 17. Even Joseph's dad, Jacob, took issue with Joseph's dreams about him being so powerful. So, what did they do? They hatched a plan. The brothers hatched a plan to get rid of their little brother, Joseph. Out in the fields, tending their flocks, they purposed to kill him. Well, it just makes all the sense in the world, doesn't it? Let's just kill him. So now we have a dysfunctional family, number one. Number two, we have what everybody apparently believed to be an egotistical, self-centered, conceited, arrogant, narcissistic teenager. I'm sure he is the only teenager that ever has been that way. And we also have a murder plot. This is all in one chapter. There's a lot going on here. As it turned out, though, they didn't murder their brother because why? Why didn't they murder their brother? Ah! A little conscience came into the picture all of a sudden. We can't murder him. Why? Because then we got to cover it up. They're starting to think, right? Okay, so we got to cover it up. We got to tell dad. We got this. This is going to be difficult to, to to deal with. So let's just sell him. That's a brilliant plan. So they sell them, and they sell them for pieces of silver. They're called shekels. And so I did a little bit of research to find out what the current value of a shekel might be. And this is fascinating, although it's really difficult to ascertain the real value of money some 4,000 years ago. What we can do is we can relate it contextually because we know that a shekel was about four days' wages. And if you take the median income in the United States today and you divide it by four days, that comes out to be about 800 bucks. And so the nine brothers got the split, 800 bucks, which is like $89 a piece. You got a sibling that you would like to sell for 89 bucks? Seriously, this is what they did. They sold Ernie. Did I hear you say that? <laughs> we'll pray for you later, Ernie. So they sold their brother for 89 bucks a piece, and of course, they eventually had to go home, and what did they do? They lied to their dad about what had happened, and they concocted this great scheme, right? And it was all about lies. And this dad, when he finds the news that Joseph is allegedly dead, is devastated, obviously. And sin does that, doesn't it? Sin does that. It creates havoc. And so what is sin? 1 John 5.17 makes it real, clear, and simple. All wrongdoing is sin. Now, nobody here is going to argue that these brothers sinned. Amen? Plotting to kill your sibling? I think that's pretty wrong by any standard of measure that anybody in this room would apply. And what about selling him as a slave? I think that's kind of wrong too. 
Nobody's going to disagree with that. Wrong. Wrongdoing is sin. And the result of this sin was simply this, that Joseph is on his way to some unknown land as a 17-year-old slave. The result of sin. He's on his way to an unknown land as a 17-year-old slave. Jacob tore his clothes, meaning that the man is in utter grief and mourning, saying that he is going to take mourning for his favorite son to his grave meaning for the rest of his life he'll be mourning for this son that he believes to be dead, but isn't. And the brothers, the brothers are in, they might not even know it, and these brothers are in complete bondage to their unrepentant sin of hate and a big lie that is now affecting their father for a lifetime. You see the havoc? Oh my gosh. What a burden to carry around. These brothers are carrying around this burden of this huge lie. It is based on hate and deception. And every time they see their father, every time they... Imagine this in your own life. Every time they see their father, they're reminded. These men are in bondage to their unrepentant sin. So look at how many lives are impacted here because of this. Now, this is not just some Old Testament story, by the way. And we read this sometimes and we think, oh, isn't that nice? It's a story. No, this is not a story, guys. This is real people in real issues in real time dealing with real life. And I think we attend to read these accounts, don't we? And then we think, wow, how horrible those people are. We gloss over any application in our own lives because, for goodness sakes, I don't know about you, I've never, I've never, i got to be careful here now, I've never plotted to kill anybody. <laughs> no, let me back that up. I've never plotted to kill a sibling of mine. <laughs> I feel more confident now that I can say that. But then I've never really plotted to sell anybody into slavery either. So, you know, what? see what I mean? How do, you, how do you relate to this? Come on, nobody in here has done any of those things. So we tend to put these stories and we set them over here, don't we? But trust me, before the morning's over, and hopefully you've brought a sack lunch, we're going to find some application because there's just no one here that in some way, whether or not you're willing to admit it, doesn't just in one way or another have to figure out how to kind of get over our bad self. Because there's a lot of sin going on here. There's favoritism, there's hate, there's scheming, there's lying, there's cover-up. Sounds like Christmas dinner at my house. I'm just kidding. You see, but it wasn't quite over for Joseph yet because in chapter 39 that we see that as he was sold as a slave to Potiphar who was the captain of the guard of the king of Egypt, he was a powerful dude, Right? Genesis 39.2 says this, The Lord was with Joseph, so he succeeded in everything he did as he served in the home of his Egyptian master. Aha! God apparently had other plans. And he did. Verse 5, From the day Joseph was put in charge of his master's household and property, the Lord began to bless Potiphar's household for Joseph's sake. All his household affairs ran smoothly and the crops and livestock flourished. So Potiphar gave Joseph, listen to this, 
complete administrative responsibility over everything he owned. So everything's going well for Joseph in Egypt. Apparently, what the brothers intended as evil, God was working out for the good. Maybe you've heard that one before. Why? Because it's absolutely true. We say it here virtually every week. God is good. And all the time. It's because it's true. God is working this out. 39.6b, with Joseph there, he didn't worry about a thing except what kind of food to eat. But now the plot thickens. This is real. Listen, because it says now in verse 6b, Joseph was a very handsome and well-built young man. If that doesn't sound like a setup, I don't know what does. And here it comes. And Potiphar's wife soon began to look at him lustfully. Come and sleep with me, she demanded. But what was Joseph's attitude in his response to this? Verse 8. But Joseph refused. I love that. Look, he told her, my master, he's a slave, remember? My master trusts me with everything in his entire household. No one here has more authority than I do. He has held nothing back from me except what? You, because you are his wife. And then the big one. How could I do such a wicked thing? It would be a great sin against God. Now we see it in the narrative. Here it is. I hope this jumps out at you. Sin, attitude, and now we see righteousness. See, things are going quite well in Potiphar's household right up until verse 7. Now, you know what I like about the Word of God? This is what I like. See, it's real. I don't know about you. We're going to do this reading plan. When I first, I bought a Bible before I was a believer because I was kind of a, what do you call them? A seeker, I think you call it. I was a seeker. I bought a Bible and I started at the beginning in Genesis and I read all the way to Revelation. And by the, by the time I got done with Genesis, I was blown away because of the reality that is included. See, God's Word is real. It's honest. It doesn't hold anything back. And it's like a mirror. The truth radiates out of it the more you look into it. The truth radiates out of the Word of God the more you look into it. So the question is, how much do you look into it? Now, I don't know. You know, <laughs> Good sermons always preach Jesus. <laughs> but there's always a good time to put in some self-deprecating humor. So I was... I was going through some. Uh, I was going through. <clears throat> I was going through some stuff the other day. It's been a couple of weeks ago, and I ran. And uh, it was hard for me because it was a. It was a box that my mom had given to me. My mom went home to be with the Lord uh, like 15 years ago, and there's this box, and I had never opened it. You see, because it was it was hard. I'm a mama's boy, and so finally I I got to the place where I decided to open the box, and so I went through and I found all kinds of stuff in there. And so one of the things I found in there was some, some old newspaper clippings that my mom had saved. You know, uh, Pop Warner football. There's little Billy Burr on the, you know, got his picture in the Ojai Valley News. You saved those? Um, and, then, uh, and then I ran across some report cards 
and it just it just stopped me in my tracks. So I I I I had to do this. So I, I took a picture of it and I made a slide. So Eileen. <laughs> so. So I'm a 17-year-old boy, and I'm going to Villanova High School, and I'm a junior, and I got a D and an unsatisfactory in a class called Jesus. <laughs> I didn't do so well in U.S. history either, uh, but P.E. was good. Oh, boy. I'm thinking that, you know... Too much sin and not enough Jesus gets you a classroom conduct of unsatisfactory, right? I was looking at that because I'm thinking about this message that Richie asked because he wasn't supposed to be here this week. Weird that he is. He's probably listening to this too. Huh. Um, so, so there it is. And I'm just thinking as a 17-year-old, it hits me. I'm, li- I'm thinking about this 17-year-old. Oh, how full of myself must I have been. Please take that down, Eileen. But we got to go back to the narrative because we have to look at the abject contrast here. You see, Potiphar's wife in extreme selfish ambition is pursuing this young, good-looking 17-year-old. Well, he may be a little bit older than 17 by the time she's pursuing him, but not much. She wants to have her way with him. Sin. Selfish lust. Sin. Let's just call it what it is. The contrast, on the other hand, is what Joseph does. He wants nothing to do with it. See, he had a choice to make too. Joseph pursues righteousness. Now, he didn't have to do that. They didn't do it in the garden. Potiphar's wife wasn't pursuing righteousness. Joseph was. Now, this is no small incident in Joseph's life. He's a slave, remember? Now, Potiphar's wife is about to double down on this sin that she's, that she's, she's acted on. But because Joseph is a righteous man, you see, she wants to double down because now she's going to lie and she is going to accuse him of rape. That's a hard word to say in church. But it's sin. Genesis 39, 14b. Look, she said, my husband has brought this Hebrew slave to make fools of us. He came into my room to rape me, but I screamed. Then he heard me scream. He ran outside and got away, but he left his cloak behind. See, that's proof. He was here. It was all a lie. Now, if it's not enough that Joseph's brothers who hated him threw him into this situation to make him a slave, now he's accused of rape. And now before God and every witness, here's Joseph pursuing righteousness and it's about to cost him his freedom. Verse 39, or 39 chapter 19th verse, Potiphar was furious. So what did he do? He threw him in jail. Verse 21. But, the biblical but, But the Lord was with Joseph. So what happens with the Lord being with Joseph now in this situation for the second time? He's in this horrific situation through no fault of his own, through the sin of others, that he's being affected because sin is horrific. And it has consequences. And now he's in jail. 
But the Lord is with him. And the Lord is with Joseph because, you see, he has something else in mind. And this whole time, the Lord is not only with Joseph, now the warden puts Joseph in charge of everything in the jail because the Lord is with him. You see, Joseph here is deciding that he has the right attitude. It's the attitude of righteousness, not sin. And so what's happening? He's just deciding to just bloom where he's planted. He's in jail. I think Joseph had to get over his bad self. Because what could he have done? Injustice! No, he didn't do any of that. He said, hey, warden, what would you have me to do? And then the warden said, man, this guy's got an attitude. I'm going to give him the entire prison to be in charge of, and I won't have to worry about a thing. He trusted him. The Lord was with him and caused everything he did to succeed. Now, I want to come back to this, but let's highlight the rest of the story. Otherwise, we're going to be here until tomorrow noon. There's ten more chapters in Genesis that tells this story. Maybe you should read it tonight before you go to bed. See, Joseph is in jail, but he's stuck there for a long time. He's in jail for a couple more years. He's forgotten in jail, but he has an experience because Potiphar had a couple of guys that were also in jail that had a dream. And Joseph interpreted correctly the dream, attributing it all to God. The interpretation. He didn't interpret it. God gave him the interpretation. And so then the king, Pharaoh, is troubled by a dream. And all of a sudden, a few years later of him sitting in jail, and we might think, gosh, he's rotting in jail. For he wasn't rotting in jail. He was blooming where he was planted in jail. But he went out to Pharaoh, and he interpreted this dream for Pharaoh, and it was incorrectly interpreted. And so what did Pharaoh do? Pharaoh said, wow, let's put Joseph in charge of the entirety of Egypt. Joseph went from a prisoner to the prime minister overnight. He just bloomed where he planted. God was blessing him. So God has revealed this plan that there was going to be a famine, and Joseph just said, listen, this is the interpretation of the dream, so why don't we just collect all the food for about seven years, and we'll put it in storehouses, and then when the famine comes, we'll be ready. The crazy thing is, is that because God had revealed this to Joseph, and he was now in charge of all of Egypt for Pharaoh, and Pharaoh had no issues. Ultimately, Joseph's family when there was no more food in the land, had to come where for food? To Joseph. Twenty-five years after being sold into slavery, never seeing his family, they had to come to him. Now remember the rest of the story. They come to him after he was sold into slavery, and what was his attitude? He simply had love and compassion for those that had sold him after plotting to kill him into slavery. After all he had been through, he simply loved his family. He could have responded in so many different ways. He had the power, he had the platform. He had everything he needed to respond in sin, and yet he responded 
in righteousness. See, this whole episode starts out with sin. The whole family is in sin. It's totally dysfunctional. I'm expecting to see smiles out there right now because your family is dysfunctional too. (laughs) Yeah, there's like three honest people. Yeah, you're right. (laughs) I mean, come on, it's been dysfunctional since the garden. By definition, our families are dysfunctional. You're dysfunctional. I'm dysfunctional. It all started with sin. That's where the dysfunction comes from. So back to the back to the slide from 1 John 5:17, what is sin? Wrongdoing is sin. So what's wrongdoing then? Wrongdoing is anything outside of the standard that God established for us in our purpose, which is to glorify Him. Can I get an amen? (laughs) Maybe even a hallelujah? God sets the standard. And I love this because I'm I'm a fan of John Piper. He's a pastor and author. And he kind of put it this way, and we're going to, I'm going to put up a slide in just a second here, because I, I, I like it because Christians are forever asking, what's sin? Oh, give me a break, church. <laughs> Anybody that asks me what is sin already knows the answer, right? But they want a list. Wait, hold in. Is it sinful to be torqued off at Doris. <laughs> I want to read through the Bible. Torqued off at Doris. Can't find it anywhere, so I guess it's not sin. Give me a break. What is sin? I love this. Forget the list. This is what Scripture says sin is. Throw it up, Eileen. The next time you're concerned about whether or not you're going down the path of righteousness or sin, think about this. Sin. It is the glory of God not honored, the holiness of God not reverenced, the greatness of God not admired, the power of God not praised, the truth of God not sought, the wisdom of God not esteemed, the beauty of God not treasured, the goodness of God not savored, the faithfulness of God not trusted, the commandments of God not obeyed, the justice of God not respected, the wrath of God not feared, the grace of God not cherished, the presence of God not prized, and the person of God not loved. That's sin. You see it written through this entire story here and our lives. You see Jacob's sin, Joseph's sin, the brother's sin, Potiphar's sin, Potiphar's wife's sin, they all missed the mark, every one of them. Every one of them fell within the context of the slide that you're looking at on the screen as she puts it back up. Reminds me of a quote from the book. Maybe you've read it from Francis Chan. It's called Crazy Love. I love this quote because this is real. God is the only one. He is the only being who is good. And the standards are set by him. Because God hates sin. He has to punish those guilty of sin. 
Now, maybe that's not an appealing standard. But to put it bluntly, when you get your own universe, you can make your own standards. I love that. God is the standard bearer. And Martin Luther, who 500 years ago stood up to the church, I love Martin Luther because Martin Luther was a reader of the Word. (laughs) And he said, This church is the Word. And he argued against church tradition, didn't he? The tradition of man. And he said, it's about the Word of God. And this is what he said. The sin underneath all our sins is to trust the lie of the serpent. That we cannot trust the love and grace of Christ. And we must take matters into our own hands. Don't you love that? You see, these sins against God and, and, and Joseph had a tremendous impact. It had a tremendous impact on the turn of events in Joseph's life involving slavery and prison specifically. And Joseph's attitude about all of it, he had a decision to make, didn't he? But you see, he didn't let his circumstances or the situation determine his attitude. He was sold into slavery and he was in prison. But by way of application, okay, here comes the big one. What about you? We're talking about sin here. What about you? What is your attitude? Especially as it relates to whatever has happened to you or is happening to you. Philippians 127a, I love gives you an antidote. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Ah. Everyone take a deep breath. And Philippians 2, the same letter. Your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus Christ. Because you see, Jesus is the standard bearer for your attitude. Now, Joseph didn't live in the circumstances of his life. And he didn't live in the past of all the wrongs that were committed on him, did he? He could have, but he didn't. Because Joseph lived in righteousness. Because Proverbs 21, he may have been thinking about this, Proverbs 21.21 says, Whoever pursues righteousness and love finds life, prosperity, and honor. Because righteousness is antithetical to sin. What does antithetical mean? Opposite. Now, I want to pull up that slide again because we looked at that slide and all we did to this slide to get to the point where you can understand righteousness is we took the word not out. What is righteousness? It is the glory of God honored as opposed to not honored, which is sin. You can read through them. Righteousness is the glory of God honored. His holiness reverenced. His greatness admired. You see, Joseph was pursuing this. The others were pursuing sin. 
They weren't honoring God's glory. They weren't seeking His truth. They didn't prize the presence of God. And they didn't love the person of God. So it's sin or righteousness. It's your choice, right? Isn't it, doesn't it always come down to that? It's your choice. Jesus said in the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, 6, Blessed are those that hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. So I proffer this rhetorical question to you again, church. We Christians, we're an interesting lot, aren't we? I mean, really, aren't we? Now, let's be honest. And this isn't to be condemning. This is really just a reality check. How many times have you and I said this? And it's always in the context of falling short. Always. Not hitting the mark. Sin. Okay, We sin. And then we say, well, I'm not perfect. I'm a sinner. There's a biblical term for that that I've coined recently, and it's called hogwash. Why do we do that? Oh, I'm not perfect. I'm a sinner. No, what you should be saying is, listen, I'm going to face the issue because I've got to deal with this situation and I've got a choice to make. I can go to the right towards righteousness or I can go to the left towards sin. My choice. But what do we do? Oh, no, we shift the blame. We come up with excuses. We, that's what sin is. It's missing the mark from the standard bearer. No excuse. Sin, attitude, and righteousness. Joseph bloomed where he was planted because he decided to make the choice of righteousness over sin. He chose to look forward to the promises of God when he could have looked back to what had happened to him. Sin, attitude, and righteousness. Don't miss this. Because sandwiched right between sin and righteousness is attitude. You see, the outcome of your attitude, truly what you say you believe and what you actually believe is the difference between living your life in freedom or bondage. Ephesians speaks a lot about this in the fourth chapter that tells us just to stop lying. Let's just tell our neighbors, he's talking to the church, let's just tell our neighbors the truth. Aubrey Norris came in this morning and said, Hey Bill, how you doing? And I said, you want the church answer or the real answer? Can't we just tell each other the truth? Can't we just live in truth, as Ephesians tells us? Don't sin by letting your anger control you. Don't let the sun go down. You've heard that. Don't let the sun go down on your sin. Church, in the end, you see, Joseph just loved. In the process, this Joseph in this story had a thirst for personal righteousness that was so overpowering that when the opportunity for sin presented itself through Potiphar's wife, he simply but emphatically said, 
How could I do such a wicked thing? It would be a great sin against God. So Joseph, for sure, got over his bad self, didn't he? This was the same 17-year-old that was arrogant. Seeking righteousness. God worked on Joseph so that he had an attitude of seeking righteousness. It was a choice. No pity party for Joseph. He wasn't upset because he didn't get what he wanted. He didn't shift the blame. He didn't hold a grudge. He wasn't angry. There was no retribution. And he didn't have an attitude that he was all that and a bag of chips. He ascribed everything to the glory of God. He chose righteousness. And when you understand the word righteousness in Scripture, it is always with one basic ingredient, and that is relationship. That's what the word means. Righteousness means that it comes with relationship. And sin, antithetical to righteousness, means that the relationship is broken. Get it? To be passionate followers of Jesus, we must, we must thirst for righteousness in everything that we say, everything that we do, everything that we think, all to the glory of God. Amen? Let's close with this scripture in Jeremiah. Jeremiah 9.24 But let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me. Not know about, but to know me. That I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For in these I delight, declares the Lord. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, sometimes... Sometimes, God, the message of the reality of the difference between sin and righteousness just just hits home. Lord, I ask that you forgive us for every time we start to think and speak and act like it's about us.
God, we need your help. In our own strength, Lord, we can't move forward. Even to have an attitude, God, that you are holy. You are just, you are righteous. Things that you ask us to be. And you gave us Jesus as the example. We find it impossible because it is impossible. Without you, Holy Spirit. So, this morning, God, if there's just a group of us here, your children, simply want to acknowledge that we need you. And maybe this morning, God, as we acknowledge that we need you, that we can't do this without you, maybe it's the break of the new year. Maybe it's, maybe this is our 2019. Maybe, God, maybe we just get on our knees like you told the woman at the well, just go and sin no more. We know that you didn't mean that we would be sinless. That was an encouraging declaration to go and choose the path of righteousness. So help us, Lord. Help us to be a kind of people, God, in 2019 that we would just be seeking your face in righteousness choices that we make, the words that we use, God, we just want to be your people, and we can't do it without you. We pray, Holy Spirit, come into this church and to be your people and reside so that there would be a thirst and a hunger righteousness, Lord, that you desire. And we thank you now, God, for being so faithful to us.